former B.C. Liberal cabinet minister who has been sitting in uh, our legislature as an independent is the new leader of the uh, provincial conservatives, John Rustad, uh, who is an MLA for the Nechaco Lakes constituency, was acclaimed leader of the Conservative Party of B.C. Uh, as he was the only candidate who entered the race. Uh, you may recognize Mr. Rust- uh, Rustad's name. Uh, he was dumped from the B.C. Liberal caucus by uh, Liberal leader Kevin Falcon last August uh, for his public statements uh, and social media posts suggesting climate change is not caused by carbon dioxide emissions. Lots going on in BC politics. Joining me now is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Keith, thanks for joining me. Happy Friday. (laughs) Happy Friday. It was supposed to be a quiet Friday over there at the legislature, but uh, clearly not. What do you make of of, uh, what uh, Mr. Rust has done? Well, John Rust has the latest guy to try to breathe some life into the long, moribund uh, political party known as the BC Conservatives or the Conservative Party BC. They haven't had an elect, someone elected as a conservative uh, since 1978 when Vic Stevens won a by-election. Uh, they have ceased being a force in B.C. politics to any great degree by the time the coalition government left in the 1940s, uh, early 50s. But, this is a big but, uh, John Rustad's going to bring some things to the table that should be a little worrisome for the B.C. Liberals. First of all, he's going he's to be in the hallway here at the legislature. He's going to be very close to TV cameras. Uh, He's a pretty quotable guy. He's going to get some publicity. So he will just inevitably increase the profile of the B.C. Conservative Party. Now, you look at the impact that party can have. It's not about necessarily electing MLAs, but they can attract enough voters in some writings to spell the difference between the NDP or the Liberals winning. In fact, that's what we saw in 2020. The Conservatives only ran 19 candidates in 87 writings, but in several writings, in fact, four writings, they polled enough voters seemingly away from the B.C. Liberals to allow the NDP to win in areas they historically had never, ever won before. And I'm talking about Langley, Chilliwack, and Abbotsford. So if, if Rutstad can breathe some life into this party, he can establish, I think, a party that is going to run more candidates, have a higher profile, and strengthen the NDP's hold on those writings. They had a breakthrough win in 2020 because the Conservatives will likely run candidates there again. They got an average of about 3,000, 3,500 votes there, so it's not an insignificant number. But then there's a bunch of other writings the Liberals hold where they won by only a handful of votes, less than 500 or less than 600. And I'm talking about Fraser Nicola, uh, Kamloops North Thompson, Surrey White Rock where the margin of victory was very small. The Conservatives did not run candidates in those writings. If they were to run candidates next time and it's another close race, again, it weakens the Liberals and strengthens the NDP's chances of winning those writings. And then you look at Nishako Lakes, which is John uh, Rustad's writing. He's won it several times. He's well-known. Mm-hmm. Very few people live there, and very few people vote. Uh, less than 7,000 people even voted in the last election. Um, so he, he's quite conceivable. John Rustad wins that as a Conservative MLA. And then finally, you look at the Two-Piece River uh, ridings, the most conservative area of the entire province. The Conservatives finished a strong second in both those ridings to the B.C. Liberals. So the Liberals would have to be worried potentially for the Conservatives even winning there. Rustad could establish a scenario we saw similar in 1996 when the Reform Party won two seats but scored enough votes in about 10 to 12 ridings to deny the Liberals a win. And the Liberals had the most votes, popular vote, 
but they didn't. They weren't able to establish a government because the NDP was way, able to score a majority of seats with fewer votes because of that proverbial split on the center right. I think in '96, the election night, I was up in Dawson Creek, and uh, you were in the in Lower Mainland here. I think Clem Chapel was covering the, uh, the NDP or the Liberals that night. But yeah, I was up there with Jack Wisegrove, and, and and I recall that uh, uh, that night um, uh, vividly. But it's interesting. I think for most of our listeners, like the, the BC Liberals uh, are essentially or are. Um, a coalition of conservatives and federal liberals. And generally when that political equation, when they're working together, you know, say two-thirds of the time in the last 60 years, they've been able to hold government. But when that coalition falls apart, uh, the NDP uh, usually get in and it can cause challenges. How does, what does Kevin Falcon do now? And what I mean by that is he's got to make sure his right flank, which is the conservative Mm -hmm. voter, comes along with him. Yet at the same time, he has to win in the Lower Mainland, in communities like Vancouver and Coquitlam and in Surrey, uh, in Richmond, all those places. And that generally means much more of a centrist voter, dare I say liberal voter as well. And that's yep. going to be very difficult for him. It's, 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 it's a real challenge for, for Falcon and the liberals. Uh, I think they may regret booting Rustad from, from the caucus. Uh, and it, also, it's interesting, I've known John Rustad for a long time. We're not talking about a complete you know, out there type of guy. He's got a very strategic um, plan here. He's really going to be focusing on a number of issues that I think will appeal to the rural and interior and northern voter. And that is, he's going to, he doesn't like the increase in the carbon tax. He thinks some of the climate change um, initiatives to fight climate change are unrealistic. He says he's not a climate denier. He just doesn't think some of these, these prescriptions from governments aren't necessarily working and are end up hurting people in the pocketbook. So that's a, that's going to be a big plank in his his ongoing themes in the legislature, and I think he's going to resonate with some of those not uh, not in necessarily urban areas, but certainly more rural and regional areas. And then Falcon has to co- find a way to claw his way back into the seats around Metro Vancouver, and that is not um, that is not tacking towards John Rustad's position. It's becoming, as you say, Jazz, a more middle of the road voter, and so he's he's getting outflanked on the right by Rustad in, in the areas the Liberals currently hold seats in. At least that's the potential. You know, let's not over build it yet. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he could, while well, his, his rear flank is being threatened by John Rustad, uh, he might have to let that go uh, because he needs to pick up the seats in Metro because there's far more many seats in Metro Vancouver than there are elsewhere in the province. Well, I had Bob Rennie. Um, I was uh, at a real estate event and, and I was moderating a conversation with the mayor and Bob Rennie. And Bob Rennie said, you know, of all the immigrants that uh, come to Canada, uh, 19% end up in British Columbia. 16 of that of those 19% end up in the Lower Mainland. Mm-hmm. So the we're in an era of uh, huge growth, era of hyper-diversity as well. And speaking to that voter, I'm almost wondering, can this coalition in a polarized environment, this conservative-liberal coalition called the BC Liberals, called the Socrats prior to that, it's, it's very difficult in this era to keep that type of coalition together. It is. It is. It is very. It's a very good point, I th- and I think we're seeing signs of some of the slight crack, cracks in the walls of the BC Liberal Party, where it is moving a little to the right um, and away from liberal positions. There's not many real true, true L liberals in the Liberal Caucus. It is increasingly a conservative caucus and a conservative party. And now that they're dropping the word liberal from their name at some point, that will further distance itself from the 
centrist liberal voter in, for, for many people. Not all of them, but for many. So it becomes the BC United Party, um, and no longer associated with liberalism. It's going to be it's a challenge for Kevin Falcon and the Liberals. It's now threatened on the right from John Rustad, and the challenge is to hang on to the center where most of the people live in Metro Vancouver at a time when you no longer associate yourself with the word liberal. It's a challenge. We are speaking to Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. We're just talking about uh, John Rustad, uh, who sits as an independent, but now will be sitting in the legislature as the leader of the Conservative Party of British Columbia. Keith, I wanted to chat with you about electricity as well and our future energy needs. I think Site C uh, is still a couple of years away or even three years away before it comes fully on stream. Uh, but we recently had the approval of uh, or Cedar LNG based up in Kitimat that will be moving forward, a small LNG project. Uh, of course, uh, LNG Canada's project, the LNG Canada project is moving forward, a massive uh, LNG facility, which there's already talk of, of uh, Shell One to expand that. Uh, those projects will, um, you know, require some sort of electrification or at least future LNG projects. Well, that's where the government's going. Do we have enough capacity right now to be doing any of this? Well, uh, interesting, uh, former civil servant Rick McCandless, uh, has got a, who has intervener status, by the way, at uh, the UBC Utilities Commission when it comes to things like BC hydro rate hikes. So he's seen as to have a level of expertise. Uh, that is far more the average citizen. So he had a paper out. He publishes papers from time to time that are published, and he had a piece last week pointing out that if we were to electrify these proposed LNG plants, which is the requirement from the government because they can't uh, add more greenhouse gas emissions through burning LNG, it would just basically uh, overwhelm the system. We do not have enough electricity. Hydro's forecasting to increase. Um, uh, the gigawatt hours is by less than 4,000, and yet it, the combined uh, gigawatt hour requirement of these of these six uh, LNG projects total more than 18,000 uh, gigawatt hours. So the math doesn't add up. I mean, not all of these are necessarily going to go through, go through, but LNG Canada has been improved. Um, if it gets second phase one is 1,400 gigawatt. Cedar is uh, Cedar LNG is 1,500 gigawatts. That's using up all of the new generation from BC Hydro. Quite apart from the increased electrification as part of the government's plan, as is many governments' plans, because electricity is clean, mm-hmm. uh, of so many things in society, not the least of which is the electric vehicle. So the government's policy right now is 90% of all cars sold in B.C. by the year 2030 have to be EVs, have to be battery-driven uh, motor vehicles. Um, B.C. Hydro estimates that's about 350,000 cars. Well, again, this, the, uh, as McCandless points out, the um, uh, electrical supply is one issue. There's another issue, and that is the, the supply chain for building electric vehicles. Many people have pointed out China controls the, ch- the supply chain because it's been buying up all the mines that produce the minerals that build batteries in electric vehicles. Those are cobalt, nickel, and lithium. China, around the world, and Asia and Africa have been buying up the mines. So they control the production line or the supply chain. And it's just unknown whether that many EV vehicles can be produced in that short a period of time to meet BC's demand, let alone the rest of North America and Europe's demand when it comes to EVs. So the, the materials are one thing, supply chain is another thing, and energy supply is another thing. So, and you add it all up, and there's got to be some skepticism. So where do we go? And it, it, I mean, everybody, I think, that uh, is probably thinking their next vehicle has at least potentially could be an EV. Um, you still have uh, industrial needs. So are we going to look at more hydroelectric dams? Is this about solar? Is this about hydrogen? Well, it's likely a combination of all of that. 
that uh, Christian Freeland's budget this past week is, contains a lot of money of tax credits and incentives to build green technology, $20 billion over five years. Um, that's to compete with the United States, Joe Biden administration has a similar push to green tech. But it does cost an enormous amount of money and capital to construct things like wind farms, for example. Um, and whether or not we can do that fast enough to meet those electrical uh, demands is, uh, seems questionable. Site C will produce more than 5,000 gigawatt hours to, to electrify 350,000 um, uh, 350,000 vehicles. That would be basically um, all of, not all of Site C's production. They, they can accommodate 1.7 million cars from Site C, according to BC Hydro. But we're not going to get to the point of having 1.7 electric, 1.7 million electric vehicles in BC anytime soon. But the electricity challenge, all governments have issued these plans to mass electrification. Mm-hmm. Something's got to give, and that means more generation facilities. So McCandless, for example, and others have pointed out as well, to meet the rising demand on a number of fronts, including LNG, requires the equivalent of three or four more Site C dams, which is just oh, <laughs> the protest with one dam. Yeah. Imagine if there's a couple so, more. So that's why I'm asking, like, if, if, if you're not, we're not going to have another uh, dam that size ever built again. I, we, I'm skeptical, let's put it that way. But So the question is, where do we go then? And, and nobody wants nuclear, even though Ontario uses it. Many have said that may be the way to go. Maybe there's micro-nuclear, I don't know. I just don't think there's an, a desire for that because we don't have a culture for that either. So there's significant challenges ahead in regards to what will the energy need? Where will, the, where will, where will our energy come from uh, 10, 15 it years will. from now? Right? It will. It's an enormous challenge. It, it is. Many people argue we need this electricity to displace fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't, I don't question that, but I do question where we're going to get all this energy from, clean energy. And the building has to begin now. And there's likely to have to be at least one more hydroelectric dam of significant size, maybe not not, not as big as I see, but I think there actually is another site on the Peace River that's been long identified as a, as a potential dam site. <laughs> but there needs to be solar, wind, um, bio, it's just right across the board because the Freeland budget is pushing this, the BC Clean Energy Plan is pushing this. But the equation isn't completed yet. The, the desire is there. The goals have been set. But how we get there is unclear when we don't have the facilities and generation facilities to get there. Well, I look forward to that conversation uh, in the months ahead because it's going to be front and center. Keith, thank you. Have a great weekend, everyone. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.